make us good wolves, towards a balanced ecology of soul via a sidelong Taoist glance at good and evil. Many thanks to Petcha, who last week wrote to me with an interesting question regarding the Taoist view on evil. Petro's writing was some of the first I discovered on here, and as I've written before, it often moves and educates me in equal measure, as does the writing of his wife, Ruth Guskowski. In answer, I cannot write for all Taoists, and especially not for Taoism. But Tao is dear to me, as I fell into it at a young age and have practised and studied for about 30 of the 40 intervening years. I find great wisdom in the teaching stories of the Taoist classics, which I love as much as the parables of the New Testament. Later in the year, I will return to today's topic when I've had time to find all the references from the Chuangzu, Lietzu, Wenzu and Dadejing and other classics, which would round out the piece. I hope to find room for it in the book I have begun to write about standing your ground using softness. But until then, here are the notes towards such a chapter. I hope they are of interest, as for me, the nature of evil, wise versus unwise behaviour, and the role of intent are frequent topics for thought. Pecho, I do hope this is of at least some use in the meantime, with a few possibly useful footnotes and book recommendations for now, until I can do your question more justice. I start out on a far horizon but I do make it back to the centre by the end. Love is the apex predator. Without love, the misplaced raccoon dogs of chaos, the escaped voracious mink of greed, and the shipping crate freighted black rats of consumerism run amok. The bindweed of conformity to every new orthodoxy smothers rarer growths of less valued virtues, which always take locally specific shapes. The uncountable herds of sheep called misuse of power are brought in to graze upon a neighbouring country or whole continent's native grasslands, and within a few years the cloven feet have turned the whole place to barren dust. But it is not their fault these animals and plants are only exhibiting their natural behaviours and tendencies. Sheep, kudzu, raccoon dogs, mink, rats, they are not evil. Neither are the natural human urges, such as hope for change behind chaos, the desire for some comfort behind greed and consumerism, the wish for community within conformity, the sense of wanting to do what is right behind much misuse of power. It's just, they have no limits to growth, as their natural predators are not present in the new context. When there are no limits to something's growth, what looks a lot like evil appears. Indeed, in this metaphor, as in real-life ecology, New, seemingly invasive organisms may be better suited to the soil-depleted conditions of modernity than the original native species of the psyche, which were place-based and vernacular. Over-prescription of the antibiotics of late-stage capitalism have often wiped out local resistance to infection by despair and strife. The once-touted panacea of the market turned out to poison anyone not also wishing to swallow exploitation. 
In fact, many people have thrived on this drug as they somehow found a way to force someone else to take the bitter exploitation pill. It is hard to muster community spirit when there are not enough people at church to organise the annual fair, or when fear of offending some nebulous entity means we do not engage in the often physically robust annual celebrations and events that characterise almost any place in the world that is neither under a fundamentalist boot nor complete institutional capture. I am definitely not saying that we must root out all these evil things. That thought itself is the strongest of all the pathogens which one can carelessly import upon the sole of one's well-travelled boot. No, none of these life forms could thrive when that which naturally eats them or grazes them to the ground regularly is present. We just no longer have our full range of inner apex species which have evolved over millennia to feast upon overabundances of illness-causing tendencies. We have lost many species of faith, customs, holy days and holidays, communal celebration, harvest festivals, congregations, commons, festivals of inversion of high and low, trust, transhumance, subsistence, fools and jesters, food cultures, folk song, social dances, local flavours, above all, belonging. All these beautiful birds and beasts, and countless more which you may have spotted on your travels, once ate their body weight daily from the occasional infestations of parasitic ticks like fascism, the mitten crabs of corruption, or the varroa mite of petty tyranny. So we will have to train our hearts to eat what it is that grows round here lately, just as we can train our hands to make baskets of kudzu vine or tree of heaven, and desserts from shoots of Japanese knotweed, we can use our ingenuity and perseverance to turn into food and useful things what is currently unbalancing our inner, local, national and global psychic ecology. I suggest that we become like good wolves and learn to prey upon what is too abundant and transform it into nourishment. I think we need our loving actions to have big teeth as well as soft bushy tails. I think our strong, roving, grieving packs of love sometimes need to howl together in the landscape. I know, of course, that there are no bad wolves, but we must counter the myth with some words as well as love, because the big bad wolf of yore dies hard. A matter of character. A thriving living culture is the natural predator of oilseed greed, which provides the grease which allows the gears of the machine to turn. Greed was the original lubricant of the steamroller iteration of the machine, of the early industrial revolution. Now it has the slick silicone spray of a billion atomized consciousnesses swiping at once to keep it whirring and it barely takes up a square mile of humming server farm. When greed was culturally frowned upon and it was once frowned upon everywhere, there was no spare oil for a machine. A living culture absolutely can and should include religion as well as many philosophies 
pan-entheism and the many open-minded variants of non-theism which are as old, variegated and venerable as religion. Traditional communally held values grazed upon and kept down selfishness, like those somewhat fierce farmyard geese keep down the slugs in the vegetable plot. Sure, my dodgy shenanigans could land me in the stocks covered with rotting veg, but still, I may well have deserved it. The pursuit of money and the successful stripping away of responsibility to others ethics and ongoing place-based reciprocity meant capitalism has proliferated like mould in a petri dish. Real earth is not like aseptic agar. Soulful soil has a thriving biome full of tiny little predators who would eat up such a germ. But that soil has often been missing, washed away by years of extractive practice. Now we are sold international regulation in place of locally mutually agreed ethical behaviour. A wind-scoured dust bowl now passes for public life. Many traditional and indigenous lifeways successfully defend against all the harms I've listed when not interfered with, persecuted or destroyed by outside interests. But chances are, if you are listening to this, that you, like me, are in a town or a city, and that our daily patterns are strikingly alike, despite the thousands of miles between us and the very different soils our double-glazed homes obliterate. We can begin to reclaim the greatest immunity against what could be called evil by practising radical responsibility for ourselves. This starts with composting our own shit. I am talking about an old-fashioned idea. Building character by engaging with and transforming difficult things. Depth of character is to a human being what a thriving living culture is to a community. It is like an aged cheese made from an ancient recipe, stored with care and shared with love, good bread and the best crisp apples. Importantly, it varies greatly place to place, but is in keeping with and arises from the place where it is made. Some years, it stinks a bit. It will not be to everyone's taste. Evil as the banishment of doubt. Personally, I am still unsure about what evil is, even though I lived in a house with it for eight years. But I will try to speak a little of it. I do know that evil acts are committed by people who do not doubt for one minute what they are going to do. They are justified. They are right. They deserve it. God wishes it so. History points to it. It is manifest destiny. They want it, or they want it back. They do not doubt that the victim was asking for it, drew it upon themselves, is less than human, is a liar, is not important enough to consider was always going to be a problem. Along with at least four of my close relatives, we have so far spent about 45 years consciously doing the painstaking composting and unpicking work that prevents certain strains of future evil from growing, of rebuilding a living soil capable of nurturing an abundance of life with the compost we've made. It is work we will do until our last breaths.
So if I seem wary of people who declare just how certain they are about who or what is good or evil, who is worthy or not of our love, care or forgiveness, who is going to heaven or hell, and what can or cannot be transformed, you'd be right. Evil as wave, not particle. I see evil as sickly energy in motion, as in a wave, not a particle that you can pin down and label once and for all. It is often a way rather than a what. The same knife making the same incision can kill or cure depending on context, timing and intent. Just looking on, judging, we could not always know. So many good intentions cause calamity, a theme in Taoist teaching stories such as Hundun, the faceless primordial being whose friends accidentally kill it by boring holes into it to humanise its face. Just as many bad intentions have unintended beneficial effects, this does not let us off any hooks. This just shows us the hubris of narrow views without appraisal of historical and ongoing contexts. Some actions or abstentions from action, as by the UK government right now, cause vast suffering. My conscience and classic Taoist teaching agree here. Some courses of behaviour are demonstrably bad. However, so far in all the Taoist texts I have read, evil specifically is not mentioned. If this is a translation error into English, then it is remarkably consistent between many translators. There is certainly mention of unwise action, going against Tao, forcing of things, going contrary to nature and so on. There are dire consequences for cruel rulers and those who despoil nature, as shown in the Chuang Tzu chapter 4 and elsewhere. If Tao is the divine way and in perfect harmony with God, as recently assured to me by an Orthodox Christian friend, then by seeking to align ourselves with the natural process, we avoid doing evil. Becoming one with the Tao is the aim of Taoism. We attempt to follow the path evident in nature. As in the original definition of sin, which is to miss the mark, in Taoism, as in Christianity, a small misjudgment of aim can lead to missing the target by a long way. In Taoism, we see our failure and adjust our practice accordingly. Wu Wei Wu, doing without doing, is the subtlest form of alignment with Tao, yet does not speak to good and evil, other than implying that forcing things is wrong. Tyranny, authoritarianism, cruelty and war are seen as aberrant and manifestly unwise due to their terrible consequences and are against the way of heaven. This does not refer to a heaven as opposed to a hell. Instead, it means celestial. If you have an aversion to paradox, then Taoism is always going to be off-limits as a wisdom tradition. Tao itself is described as being the progenitor of polarity, as exemplified by yin and yang, and the texts are full of stories of reversal. An old man's eldest son breaks his leg and, oh, what evil fortune! The warlord rides through and takes the eldest sons off to war, except the old man's. Oh, what good fortune! And so on. Ad infinitum. 
a king gives a boastful toast at a palace supper, declaring all the creatures in his kingdom were made for him to eat, thus proving his royal right. He is answered by a young boy, clearly speaking for the more than human world, who reminds him that the lice who live in his hair are, by this reckoning, his rulers. Not only humanity. Taoism never developed the purely human-centric views or a specifically human soul as did the Platonic Christian tradition and its humanism. Thus, it is sometimes disconcerting to those who are used to a more rigid definition of good and evil to see how Taoist texts zoom out and seem to see things from the point of view of the happiness of fishes, the tranquility of an uncarved block, the perfect imperfection of a huge old gnarled misshapen oak tree, or the boundless sky itself. It does not mean that a Taoist cannot recognise evil, does not attempt to alleviate suffering, or won't abstain from bad behaviour. If that were so, then long periods of strong cultural Taoism in Chinese history would have been comparatively barbaric. They were not. Yet in all the classics, there is indeed a profound scepticism of the call to indignant judgment that labels someone else's actions as evil, and yet somehow never our own. In Taoist tradition, there is no adversary, no direct personification of evil as found in Christianity. Ill deeds are instead recognised in life by their ill effects and as a deviation from the natural way, or Tao. Heaven and earth are not humane. They regard all beings as straw dogs. To the Western ear, this quote from Chapter 5 of Dao De Jing may seem at best ambivalent, at worst deeply upsetting. But one cannot go far into Tao only by comparing the Dao De Jing with the Bible, whether the Old Testament featuring an often wrathful Yahweh or the New Testament concentrating on the good news. The ground, culture and history from which these two traditions sprouted were completely different. The constant calls to return to nature are what drew me into studying Tao. Perhaps they resonated deeply because I saw the rivers, mountains and forests of the texts in my experience of my homeland. I felt at last a space to breathe where the lessons were real and often hard in the texts, martial arts and inner alchemical work. Yet there was a spaciousness around them, not tied to ideas of hell, damnation or other everlasting states, which I never once saw reflected in nature, only cycles of change and transformation. Now, as I am older, at last I begin to see the similarities and deeper correspondences between my chosen path and the one I was born into. This pleases my heart greatly. I will speak more about this in a piece later this year. Surely goodness and truth shall follow you. If Tao speaks little of evil, then to close, I can at least write confidently that it speaks often of good, and most often in these terms. The highest good is like water. The good in water benefits all. Water, in its non-contention, its support for all life and its flow, is the archetypal Taoist image of good. Not a good as opposed to an evil, but another quality completely 
a living image of that which gives life to all beings equally without needing to do anything. This may remind you, as it does me, of Matthew 5.45. Where Tao and the parables come together for me is in the exhortation they both give to stop striving and overthinking, but instead to pay attention to nature as an unending source of wisdom and instruction. For this, we cannot beat. And why take ye thought for raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. In its subtle ribbing of a king even, this cannot be beaten as a perfect parable for a Taoist or a Christian.